decades ago Looking real good in my passport photo Amateur Traveler, episode 534. Today, in an effort to continue to cover all the little corners of the globe, we return to Micronesia to cover the tiny countries of Kiribati, not spelled like you think, Tuvalu, and Nauru. Welcome to the Amateur Traveler. I'm your host, Chris Christensen. Let's talk about Micronesia. I'd like to welcome to the show Stefan from Rapid Travel Chai, who's come to talk to us about Micronesia. Stefan, welcome to the show. Thank you. We have done one other show on Micronesia years and years ago with Gary Arndt, the very first time he was on the show, the very first time he and I ever talked. But we're going back because we didn't cover all of Micronesia in that episode. Stefan, why should we go to Micronesia and can you put it on a map for us first? Well, on a flight, uh, a German tourist said to me that it's you're either in the government, a missionary, or a country collector. Uh, Micronesia does have some fantastic uh, destinations, but it's also very different than what you expect. There's not the typical island paradise with beaches or, or the fantastic diving of some of the South Pacific or Caribbean islands. So it really is a specialist destination. And in your prior episode with Gary Arndt, you covered some of the more accessible ones, and now we're going to talk about the, the less accessible ones. Okay, and we're in the Pacific. Is there a best-known island that we're talking about? Yeah, so we're in the Pacific, and, and roughly Micronesia is the stretch of islands that are north uh, of what's generally called the South Pacific. So if you draw roughly a line between Hawaii and Philippines, you, you have a whole stretch of islands. Part of those, the, the northern section, uh, United Airlines flies a well-known Micronesia hopper route uh, that connects several of the Marshall Islands, Federated States of Micronesia, Guam, and Palau are better known. And what we're going to talk about here are the ones that are a little bit south of those, and these are the country of Kiribati, uh, Tuvalu, and Nauru. And oddly enough, while we're talking about this, Gary, who is the guest for the other show, is in those islands that we're talking about. Uh, so if you hadn't pitched it now, he would have pitched it to me in another week. So your timing was just about perfect. So I do remember hearing Gary Arndt and his uh, passport moistening fiasco that uh, prevented one of those visits some years ago. The, the good news is these three countries, for the most part, have uh, gotten very accessible. Uh, the only visa complication for most nationalities is Nauru, which we can talk about uh, in a bit. But uh, Kiribati and Tuvalu, at this point, most major passport holders can fly right in and be admitted to the countries. And I'm going to guess that the German who was on the plane with you was correct that you were a country collector and not with an NGO or with the government. That's correct. So uh, I'm sitting today in Greece, which is my 186th out of uh, 193 UN countries as well. There's a more elaborate lists such as the Traveler Century Club that count individual territories. And when we look at the country of Kiribati, the main two island groups are separated between a, a distance almost the same as New York to L.A., over 2,000 miles between hmm. the uh, Gilbert Islands, which where the current capital is uh, best known as uh, Tarawa, and the Line Islands, Christmas Island, Fanning, Phoenix Islands. The entire country covers a, a tremendous distance. Excellent. Well, what kind of itinerary would you recommend? This is one that requires and, and demands a careful planning. So the, the biggest challenge to visiting these countries is the flight access. And if you read stories of travelers that were going five or ten years ago, uh, you have tales of woe of, of bankrupt airlines, planes impounded <laughs> or broken for weeks. Much of that has improved. Your two key airlines are Fiji Airways, which just turned 65 and, and has gotten very, very good. I've had about 20 flights on them in the past year, and, and not one was significant delayed, uh, as well as Nauru Airlines. And, and you need to work with their schedule. Some of these flights are only once or twice a week, only fly out of one place. You find the schedule that works for you and piece it together that way. Okay. And tell me more about the itinerary that you took, where you went, and uh, what you did when you were there. 
Bachner area, I was already in Australia with my wife for a vacation, and, and she didn't warm up to the idea of island hopping going <laughs> all the way back uh, to the U.S. Uh, through a number of these countries. So the most flights to Nauru are out of Brisbane. Uh, there's a Australian detention center for asylum seekers that is uh, of note and currently in the headlines about uh, issues related to that, as well as the, the center they have in PNG. Uh, so there's been a huge buildup on Nauru, and there's several flights a week out of Brisbane, and, and that's where I started. You generally have a choice of, as I said, with very few flights, a, a couple days or or a week or more. So uh, my itinerary was to Nauru for two days and then continuing on a once-weekly flight uh, up to Majuro in the Marshall Islands and then uh, spending the night there two days and then continuing back on the return of the Nauru flight down to Tarawa for a couple days, which linked up to a twice-weekly flight on Fiji Airways back to Fiji, uh, where I was able to fly to Tuvalu. Uh, it's somewhat complicated, as you've seen, uh, but if you can piece together the schedule, uh, you can usually find a way to, to make some of these work. A lot of the flight schedules are seasonal in the region. For instance, uh, the Tuvalu flights are typically twice a week from Fiji, but in peak times, which would usually be around November, December, as well as July, August, there may be three a week uh, on the schedule that, that can help fit some of these in a little better. Okay. Well, let's talk about uh, Nauru first. What is there to do once you're sitting in Nauru waiting for the next flight? The one thing about Nauru that, that actually is a challenge before you get there is that's the one that you do need a visa in advance unless you've got an immediate flight connection. And, and the biggest challenge you run into is there's only three accommodation options on the island, and two of them are usually booked solid, and the third doesn't generally reply to emails faster than once every few weeks. So you get the visa through Brisbane and consulate, which they do entirely online. You don't need to appear in Brisbane, but they do know the accommodation issue and they insist that one of the three provide you a written confirmation that you do have a place to sleep and and they will not let you on the plane if you don't have that uh, potentially some other airports might be more flexible but out of brisbane they they do not let you on the plane so i actually booked this trip last minute and had a, a heck of a time almost had to call it off the third one of the three so menon is the largest government-run hotel uh, it has the best facilities. There's a small one called Iwa Lodge that only has a few rooms. And then the third is called Odin, Iowa. And they are the most basic option and typically have something if you can get them to, to put in writing that they do. So I was able to book that uh, and got it just a few days before I got my visa and, and was on the flight uh, into Nauru. Okay. And then when you're on Nauru, what is there to do? So there's two main activities that you can do. One, and get an idea, the, the island is about 21 square kilometers, and there's a ring road around the island that's about uh, 18 kilometers. Uh, so the, the one thing to do, whether you're a runner or just crazy, is to get up at dawn or before dawn and walk the entire island. There's very few countries that you can do that and, and still come <laughs> back for breakfast. So stopping for pictures at a reasonable pace. You're looking at two and a half to three hours. There's a lot of activity early in the morning. Uh, most of the merchants on the island are Chinese or actually Taiwanese. They're steaming buns for breakfast. They run many of the restaurants and shops. People are going to work and school uh, such as they do before a long midday siesta. So it pays to get up early and, and walk the entire island, say you've done the entire country. Um, the island is, is divided by what they call bottom side and top side. So bottom side is the entire coast. There's very little swimming. It's it's uh, quite dangerous in most places. There There is an area on the coast by the Menon Hotel called Anabar where they built a boat ramp and there's some swimming as well as there's interesting rock formations along the walk on that side of the island. Uh, the rest is really just greeting the locals out uh, on their morning routine. And, and you'll even see, and, and this, this is something that was quite interesting to me, is the complications with the Australian Detention Center and a court that was a court ruling in the local Nauru courts means that the asylum seekers are technically not detained according to Nauru law. So quite a few have actually been able to move out of the formal detention centers, set up residence uh, along the coast. 
they may not be free to leave, but some have even brought property and have started families. And, and so uh, some, I saw two Somali women that uh, a local guy introduced me to that were out in their morning groceries and had become part of the neighborhood. And I certainly didn't expect to see Somalis grocery shopping on a morning walk in Nauru. So these are people trying to get into Australia from wherever, but they're ending up on Nauru. Yeah, and so Australia, and it's a very controversial policy. They have set up offshore detention centers, uh, both in uh, Manus Island, uh, Papua New Guinea, as well as in Nauru. This has been running for some years. So these people are processed in these centers and and can be in legal limbo, essentially, for a number of years and potentially uh, not able to return to where they came or maybe have no status in their former homeland, as well as no path out into Australia proper. And uh, Sadly, it has hit the news the past few months, uh, allegations of uh, misdoings and abuse in, in some cases in the detention center. So Nauru has found itself squarely in, in the headlines in the region the past several years, and it's a very difficult and intense political situation to, to work through with Australia, uh, which essentially is their greatest economic tie, uh, as well as changing the society of Nauru, a country of only about 10,000 people. Huh. Interesting. So they must pay Nauru to have the detention center there since it is an independent country at this point? Yes. And uh, it became independent in uh, 1968, I believe, after a joint trusteeship as part of the post-colonization efforts of the UN. Uh, and, and so that has been an economic boom. The country was essentially bankrupt a decade and a half ago when the phosphate mining, which, which previously was the only economic benefit of the island had collapsed and with it the the economy had collapsed so this this became the lifeline and and now has has created a mini boom that's allowed the this island to prosper to a degree that uh, would have been unexpected or impossible any other way Hmm. Well, anything else we should say about Nauru before we head off to the Marshall Islands? Yeah, so that that leads into topside which is the hilly part of the island and this is incredibly hot gravel roads, you'll want to find a local taxi, which in Nauru means that you should uh, ask somebody and they will know somebody who has a vehicle uh, to take you up (laughs) into the hills. Now, some of these areas are the detention centers, so you're not able to obviously go into them. Others are the former phosphate mines, uh, which you're able to see from the roads. Uh, it's quite dangerous to walk through some of those uh, risk of col- the ground collapsing and such. And some of the mines are reopening. It's a fascinating, strange moonscape and an experience to see the incredible, difficult environmental conditions that uh, are up there. There's there's one other site, uh, the Boada Lagoon, which is closer down the hills on the way back down to bottom side, a, a beautiful lagoon that's dangerous to swim in, but it's, it's the one sort of lake uh, in the island, a uh, very small place, uh, as you've seen. Well, you talked about small place. I'm looking at the map, and just to put it in perspective for people, the runway for the airport covers roughly half the distance of the width of the island. When the planes are coming through, they have to close traffic on the, the road because that's how you drive through. So I had to wait for the plane to leave to uh, get to my hotel, and there was no way to walk across and, until they were done. It, it is incredibly small. The government buildings are, are right down by the airport. It's, it's fascinating to walk into a country where everything is so small that, that truly people know every single one. Uh, when I was there, they were having a local election and everything was shut down in the evening because they were all at the same meetings to meet the candidates. Uh, very, very small place, but undergoing a lot of change uh, because of the way that they've ended up in the larger global refugee uh, issue. Now, it sounds to me like if you were to run into a traveler like the German tourist ran into you, you would have the same advice that if this wasn't a country you could count, you wouldn't necessarily recommend going here. I'd say probably not, and that's that's not to be critical. It's just that it is an expensive place to get to. Uh, many of the Pacific Islands are there's just no no way to access them except without the flights. So if you're interested in current affairs, uh, it, it's a fascinating place. That there's obviously very friendly islanders. You can meet kids playing uh, games on the beach and, and all of that. But it's there's there's no beaches to speak of. There's very few World War II relics, and it's a, a heck of a, a way to go just to get that next country. All right, shall we move on to Tuvalu then? Absolutely, and and this is an interesting segue. You mentioned the runway in Nauru, and Tuvalu is also an incredible 
incredibly small place and the runway is the social center of the town so this runway was built in world war ii uh, primarily by u.s forces uh, it was not the site of any major battles although there was activity on the island and probably the biggest activity you can do on tuvalu is spend time on the runway there's two to three flights a week and the rest of the time uh, particularly in the evening when it cools down there's various uh, rugby matches soccer matches church groups preaching, community meetings, and when it doesn't rain at night, many of the islanders actually uh, lay out a spread and sleep on the runway overnight as, <laughs> as the coolest place to, to spend the evening. So if you're an aviation junkie, uh, this really is the place to, to experience uh, aviation front and center and have a blast uh, living right by the runway or on it if you choose. <laughs> and I'll be honest, if Tuvalu didn't have the .tv domain name that they owned, I'm not sure that I would have heard about it. Yeah, so these are the former Ellis Islands, a uh, British territory. They are incredibly small, about 10,000 people. And like many of these uh, Pacific nations, many of the islanders actually live in larger countries such as Fiji or New Zealand uh, in which to work. The only flight service is through Nadi Fiji two to three times a week. Uh, it can next in Suva. And for those who have not visited Suva, it's probably my favorite city in the Pacific. Uh, there's not all that many great cities in the Pacific. And most visitors to Fiji only go to the resorts around Nadi as well as the outlying islands. But it's since you're almost guaranteed to have an overnight because of the flight schedule, Suva actually is a, a very pleasant, fun town to lay over on your way into Tuvalu. And when we're not lying on the runway in Tuvalu, what are we doing while we're there? You can go to the north end of the atoll or the south end. And the south end takes a few, maybe half an hour to walk. And the north end uh, would take an hour, hour and a half or find somebody with a motorcycle. The, the entire uh, country has about five miles of roads in it. And, and only the main <laughs> one is paved up and down. There's different little houses People live uh, right by the roadside. At its narrowest point, the atoll can be less than, say, 50 yards across ocean to ocean. Hmm. So there might just be the road and one house. Um, there's interesting uh, boat wrecks from various shipping. There's different points and, and view lookouts, but it's it's mainly to see the, the quirkiness of island life, an old gentleman reading his newspaper with a hard hat in case the coconuts fall, those, those kind of slices <laughs> of island life that you, you don't get anywhere else. Else. The one other major activity is taking a boat into the uh, Funafuti Conservation Area, which is a government-run boat. There is one of them. They can only take uh, several passengers a day. The several days I was there, there were storms each day where they were not able to take anyone out. So I did not experience that. Um, but that is the one uh, big activity that pretty much everyone seeks to do. Um, Tuvalu, unlike Nauru, does have outlying atolls, and very few tourists will ever reach those. There's incredibly infrequent and unreliable government boats that if you do take those out there, you might very well be stuck for, for weeks or months uh, for the next boat. So for all intents and purposes, Tuvalu is the main Funafuti Atoll, uh, where the airport is and, and where the services are. Now, you mentioned Funafuti that you didn't get to. So that's uh, a conservation area uh, just conserving a portion of the ocean, I'm assuming here. Yes, and it's in part of the lagoon. Uh, so it's just a small boat that they would take out. So the, okay. the atoll where the capital is is called Funafuti, and it's the, the conservation area of that. And then outer atolls make up the overall country of Tuvalu. And so as I look at a map, you, the area where you can walk to while you're there is really only a portion of the a much larger atoll. Yeah. Others are separated by water, depending on high or low tide, and much of it is, is now in the conservation area, which you would have to go with the government boat to, to be able to visit. There's very strict restrictions on, on any kind of sport activity or sport fishing, so that's not really going to, to be an option uh, in Tuvalu. So we're not going on the government boat to go snorkeling in the conservation area or something like that? Snorkeling, yes. You can go okay. snorkeling. I, I don't believe that they have any um, scuba diving facilities, and I don't believe they allow any fishing. Excellent. Anything else we're going to do while we're here in Tuvalu? Well, back to the aviation theme, one of the uh, <laughs> one of the other quirky aspects of the experience is uh, for a country that doesn't have a lot of flights, it's somewhat surprising they want you to check in two or three hours in advance yeah. uh, when the, 
the, the terminal is essentially a small a small shed. But the nice nice thing about it is they check you in, they stamp you out of the country, and then send you back to your hotel for breakfast. So uh, you've you've left the country, but you're just you're free to go about as as you please and, and come back when you see the plane fly in because after all they, they know you're not really going anywhere that they can't find you. Uh, so it's an interesting experience and as obscure as some of these sound uh, Tuvalu the the main town has a a Wi-Fi network that covers the the several hotels in the center as, as well as the buildings in the center so you're you're no longer to- thinking about these places as being totally disconnected they have mobile phones they have Wi-Fi um, there's a lot of increasing commerce that that comes and goes so it's it's fascinating to see how these places are are modernizing uh, how the fishermen are sending off their catch on the flights out uh, for their income and that and, and seeing how they they grapple with with the changing global economy and their role in it well so i'm curious you know that one of the questions that i usually ask is when did you feel closest to home when was it most familiar and when did you feel furthest from home when was it most unfamiliar and of course you mentioned the guy with the hard cat and the coconuts and i and that question came to mind for me when I felt furthest from home, I had originally booked a guest house in Tuvalu that was listed on Booking.com that was out of the main town area, and even the neighbors didn't know it really existed. And I got there, and and everything was so broken. They, the little room fan they had didn't didn't even operate. And, and to spend three days there in that tremendous heat was probably the only time where I, I apologized. And the owners were very nice and gave me a lift back to town to uh, one of the guest houses in, in the main cluster to uh, seek accommodation there. So some of those moments where the climate is just so, so hot that the, the everyday frustrations of travel can, can make you take a moment where you you lose your cool for a bit and, and need to regroup and and then closest to home is is just that people are people and and sitting there in one of the few restaurants in the center of Funafuti and having tuna and, and meeting the chef who made it and, and the appreciation uh, when you thank her or even that uh, one night when it just poured torrential rain and the grass areas around the runway became a, a slip and slide uh, playground of the kids just running and, and jumping <laughs> with their rugby ball into the huge puddles. And all I wanted to do was was jump in there myself and, and uh, right back to when I was their age. You mentioned the restaurants. Uh, so I'm guessing when we're on these islands, we're on a diet that is more fish than beef and other things that are going to have to be flown in. The Pacific is one of the hardest places to get good seafood and that ties into local fish stocks either being contaminated or essentially killed off due to large fishing trawlers from countries such as Japan, U.S., uh, China that have taken away the fishing stock so far out that the local fishermen are not able to catch all that much. In Tuvalu, you can get uh, different, say, yellowfin tuna as dishes that because of the conservation area and different steps they've taken, some of the fishing has come back. Generally, you're eating very simple dishes. Um, There's usually uh, Naro, I mentioned there's a number of Chinese restaurants because of the, the migrant population there. Tuvalu, you have a bit more of an Indian influence because its connection to the outside world is Fiji. Um, but each each of those, you're only talking about a handful of restaurants, pretty basic options. A lot of the food is flown in, uh, packaged, and uh, cooked, simple rice dishes. Uh, in the past, Spam has been popular in a lot of the countries, but I've not, not had to eat Spam. <laughs> So it sounds like when we're there, things might be a little more expensive than I was. Uh, you know, people might be thinking in terms of island paradise. Really, in in the whole Pacific, the only ones that I would say seem like a value cost-wise would be some of the major tourist spots, such as Fiji, uh, maybe Vanuatu. Pretty much anywhere else in the Pacific and Micronesia, you're talking about paying more than you would expect uh, or more than a comparable island elsewhere. And a lot of that is when you're going to destinations that only have a few hundred or a couple of thousand tourists a year, essentially you're paying for the infrastructure for all the people that, that aren't there and the difficulties of, of bringing in goods and supplies for the island. Uh, so it is an economic challenge, particularly for the locals when they have to deal with these kind of costs. Excellent. Well, shall we move on to Kiribati? Absolutely. So Kiribati is 
uh, as I mentioned in the intro, is, is separated by a huge geography. So let's start in the Gilbert Islands, and this would be the far western island chain that uh, is the current seat of the country and quite overpopulated on the main atoll, Tarawa, which would be familiar to many from the World War II battle fought there. And I am familiar with it, but not necessarily everybody, as we're talking about a naval battle that it caused a lot of uh, sunken Japanese ships, which is one of the reasons why it's well known. Absolutely. And it was one of the first major successes of a U.S. Marine landing in the Pacific. Uh, essentially, the Japanese guessed wrong of which side would be invaded, and, and the U.S. Marines guessed correctly. So this island, I'm a big uh, World War II history buff of Micronesia. This island has the most extensive World War II sites that you can see and rivals in the region, uh, Solomon Islands, Guadalcanal, uh, in terms of what you can see left over from World War II. And you say a lot left over. What is left over to see? So you'll see various uh, along the beaches. You'll see different uh, guns that are still in place. You'll see various bunkers that the Japanese built in the streets of, of the of the atoll. You'll see the former hospital, the former headquarters, all of these partially bombed out and. Islanders have just gone about their lives. So that former hospital, for instance, uh, people built their houses around it and tie their uh, hammocks to, to the, the walls of, of the old hospital. So they've, they've integrated it uh, into their lives. There, there's a few wrecks immediately offshore on uh, the north side of the atoll that, that you can wade out without diving and, and see some of that. And then there is a time capsule that the U.S. forces uh, have put there that, that will be opened in uh, another half century that uh, is a small memorial to the U.S. forces there. And, and that's in the back of a government uh, recreation center's uh, backyard. Now, uh, one thing that we're going to have a little trouble when people are trying to look up what we're talking about on the Internet and we're looking up Kiribati, uh, they're going to have a little difficulty with that. So that's the language point you're bringing out. And as I understand, it's Hawaiian missionaries that translated the language and added a, a Roman script. So when you see T-I, that is S. So the country that looks like Kiribati is Kiribati. The capital area of Tarawa is spelled B-E-T-I-O, <laughs> but it's pronounced uh, Beso. Uh, so you just you have to get that in your head, and I didn't learn any of the other pronunciations all that authentically. But you have to, you have to change the ti into the s sound, or or you're going to have a, a real heck of a time communicating. So what else would you recommend we do while we're on Kiribati? So in Tarawa itself, the the major thing is the the World War II walking tour, and and this all. I'll insert uh, just finding information on each of these countries is very difficult and very scarce uh, despite all the online resources and uh, th this will sound strange but the best resources are still the moon micronesia guidebook published in 2003 and the lonely planet south pacific and micronesia 2006 edition in 2007 the bbc bought a stake of lonely planet and subsequently when editions have gotten progressively reduced coverage. Uh, Micronesia disappeared in 2009, and Tuvalu huh. did, went down to a paragraph in 2012. So both of these books you can get very cheaply from online uh, sources such as Amazon. Not all that much changes on the islands. The restaurants and accommodation change, but the various sites and that are there. So I used both of those guides to plan my uh, walking tour of the World War II sites. On Tarawa, there's also a cafe called Chatterbox, uh, not too far from the airport, that has smoothies and coffees and and other things that local expats hanker after. Uh, they organize tours as well. I, I found it quite expensive for what they were offering uh, and, and that I was able to do on my own uh, using these, these old resources. So I definitely recommend those two books for anyone looking at any of the Micronesia Islands. Excellent. And just tell me more about the walking tour you did. So I essentially started in uh, the airport area and there is one road up and down the main Tarawa Toll and uh, one of the gentlemen at our guest house uh, was a New Zealand construction worker who was uh, just finishing a project of trying to repave sections of this road and when you think that there's only one road in the country where you 
you can't stop traffic. We saw this poor man with his little paving tools <laughs> in the in the heat uh, each day as we went back and forth. It was an extraordinary challenge, but you can hop on any bus in the direction you want to go, and the atoll widens out in certain areas. And there's different settlements and towns, and then it gets very narrow uh, to where there's only a causeway into the main administrative and and sort of capital center of Beso, uh, where most of the sites are mentioned. So if you walk around the coast, the southern coast there, uh, you'll see various bunkers, gun emplacements, uh, as well as families and children playing on them, and then walking through different parts of the neighborhoods using uh, the Lonely Planet 2000. Six, I was able to, for instance, find the time capsule left by the U.S. forces. Much of this is fairly well hidden, so without an accurate map uh, or a tour guide, uh, you would only see a, a small part of it as you as you walk around the island. Hmm. Interesting. And so, and the, those being the best resources to get there. Okay. And you're not walking the whole length of the island this time. This one's a little larger. This one's quite large, and, and one of the alternatives, if you stay uh, longer, is is you can head north uh, past the airport. The area is called Buota, where the road ends, and then there's little informal ferries that, that can take you across some of the, the next several islands of the atoll. And there's a few basic eco-lodges uh, in these places that you would need prior arrangement to book. And by basic, I mean there's a little overwater bungalow that has no running water, no electricity. It's just the shack and whatever you bring in. So if you really want to disconnect and get away from it all, these could be of interest. Anything further afield in the Gilberts uh, requires huge time commitments uh, waiting for government boats uh, or government flights that may or may not operate to schedule. So uh, boat to the end of the road is, is as far as I went, and if I had stayed longer, I might have spent a night or two in those eco-lodges. And then I think I was conflating uh, Tarawa with Truck when I was thinking of it was a place for wreck diving. Uh, correct. So Truck in the uh, Federated States of Micronesia is famed as the best World War II wreck diving in the world world that is a, a separate destination. The issue with the atolls in Tarawa and, and throughout Kiribati is both dangerous environmental conditions as well as tremendous pollution. So having so many people living together on a very narrow stretch of land with very little water supplies means that the beach and the immediate lagoon uh, is also the latrine for the island as, as well as a lot of waste and, and refuse ends up in the water. So these are not ones that you necessarily want to jump out and, and go swimming in. Now, is there more of that in the outer islands, which wouldn't have the, quite the population? Yeah. So if you take that end of the road up to Boat, that's where the locals say you can start going in the water and swimming and, and where those eco-lodges are. That oh, would it. be clean and safe. That's uh, why the eco-lodges it's, it, it, it's right around the urban areas that, uh, unfortunately, the the environmental conditions are, are so harsh that pollution is quite severe. And, and actually, leading into the other half of Kiribati, the government has made a huge initiative to resettle people from Tarawa over 2,000 miles away to Christmas Atoll uh, in the uh, Line Islands, which is the other half of the country, hmm. um, just in an effort to reduce crowding on Tarawa. Are those islands larger, or it's just they were less uh, populated? Christmas is larger. I, how much of it is inhabitable, I should say, is uh, maybe a question. A lot of it's salt flats. Uh, hmm. So if we go all the way to Christmas Island, which is the main center and the only commercial airport in the Line Islands, you actually have a two-day trip through Fiji. So there's no domestic air service. There's no longer a Kiribati National Airline. Hmm. So you have quite a journey if you're in Kiribati going between Tarawa and Christmas Island. It's very much even more remote than, than any of the islands we've discussed before. Can you tell me more about Christmas Island? Christmas Island Kiribati, not to be confused with Christmas Island Australia, is one of the harder destinations to reach in the world. There's one weekly flight on Fiji Airways. You have the option of a day trip departing from Fiji and returning to Fiji, or you have the option of flying from Honolulu where the flight continues and spending eight days there. Most tourists end up choosing one day unless they're avid fishermen because Christmas Island is known amongst hardcore fishers for its claim to be one of the best 
fishing destinations in the world for its bonefish. Uh, some grizzled old fishermen, including an ex-marine from Texas, hanging out in the uh, Besso Lodge all the way over in Tarawa, simply said, ain't no fishing better than Christmas Island. And uh, so the main activity in Christmas Island is incredibly pricey fishing junkets. Uh, there's very little tourism elsewhere. They're opening up potential routes to Phoenix Islands, not too far away. Uh, but that really is the main thing other than some lagoon tours. So that's what I signed up for. It took quite a bit of time to find a responsive local provider. I eventually found one called Ikeri House, which is in the main settlement called London, which is across the atoll from the other settlement, Paris. And they arranged <laughs> a day of bone fishing. I had never been fly fishing before. Uh, the first thing I learned is they provide all the equipment except the boots. And in my sandals, my feet got burned with marks that showed for months for standing for hours in the shin-high water in the lagoon learning how to fly fish for these very aggressive bonefish. Now, was this the day trip or did you do the week-long stay? I, I did the day trip from okay. uh, Fiji. It's, uh, I mean, it, it's 18 hours versus 18 hours plus seven days. And, and that flight famously in the past was, was quite unreliable. Uh, actually, on my flight uh, were two U.S. government officials flying in to inspect the uh, firefighting equipment in Christmas Island to make sure that it is uh, able to uh, meet international airline guidelines so that they could continue flying to the U.S., on this route and it, it did pass because the the flight did go on to Honolulu and, and came back later in the day uh, realistically um, the costs of, of fishing or any of the activities are, are quite expensive and and there's not all that much else uh, you can do you can take some road trips the the entire length of the atoll it, it, it goes in a huge crescent through various salt flats many of the areas are uninhabitable so there is scenery uh, that you could drive through for for an entire day uh, but accommodation options food all of that are, are quite limited and, and quite expensive so uh, I did make the choice to, to spend the day as as do many people that uh, that do venture out that way Okay. And you mentioned, not to be confused with, and we've done another show on the other Christmas Island uh, with uh, Lee Abamonte, if I remember correctly. Uh, this one is, of course, spelled similar to Kiribati, so it's K-I-R-I-T-I-M-A-T-I, -I -I -I, Christmas, just just the way it sounds. <laughs> Yeah, and they say Carissimus, <laughs> a bit like that. So you, you get the, the, the Kiribati spelling. Uh, it, it is an interesting one. It, it's any, any destination I go to, I, I try to find what makes it stand out. There's many places that have beaches, but something like Christmas, what it really stands out for is the bone fishing. And, and while I was fishing, uh, which is actually quite difficult, the reason they're famous to try to fish is, is they're small but extremely powerful and snap your line easily. While I was learning and failing, a, a manta ray sw swam up to me to laugh at me for a while, and I was uh, essentially able to pet it uh, for about an hour while it, it hovered around and, and uh, mocked at uh, my poor fishing ability. <laughs> you wouldn't necessarily be projecting on that manta ray, <laughs> would you? He was entirely too interested for it to be any other reason. But that that shows in, in some ways, as I mentioned, that there are challenges of pollution in the, the built-up areas. But there's also uh, certain opportunities to see pristine environment and to, to hang out with a manta ray in, in, in shin-deep water was a spectacular experience. Well, and historically, this is actually where the UK did their H-bomb tests, so not in Christmas, but close by. And I'm not as familiar with the history of, of those tests. I have been to Marshall Islands where the U.S. Uh, did the testing in, in Bikini Atoll. And mm -hmm. it is fascinating to uh, dig around. For instance, in, in Majuro Marshall Islands, there's a, a center that represents the Bikini Islanders and their continued work to uh, return to their homelands or, or to receive compensation uh, for, for the destruction of their homeland. What's besides being remote, difficult to get to, and uh, the visa being so difficult? Any other warnings that we should have before we go to these destinations? 
it's really the the scheduling and the costs of, okay. of finding a way to make it work. So that's so why I said they're, they're wonderful places on their own. They're just much more expensive to get to, and and your schedule needs to work around their schedule in terms of the flights to make it work. But you you won't meet friendlier people. The opportunities to to dive into the culture. Essentially, most people live by the roadside on these narrow atolls, and you're welcome to to join in. There's many churches and schools active where where you can go in. And for somebody such as myself that flies a tremendous amount for business or leisure, going to a place where in an island of of 10,000 people where 500 or 1,000 show up to greet the flight because they're all greeting some extended family and and showering them with shells (laughs) and, and, and flowers and that, that's that's a spectacular experience that that reminds us how wonderful it is to, to be able to travel and to go around in the world as as many of us do. And speaking of locals, the most memorable person you met? The most memorable local person I met was a gentleman that uh, was recommended by my guest house in Nauru, and he has a pickup truck, and he's the one who, who took me up to uh, Topside on the island and showed me around. I uh, must confess I did get a little worried when he stopped for a few beers to have on the road, but then I realized essentially it's uh, like a NASCAR track to going very very slowly to drive around in a circle on the island and and the local color he showed and I mentioned those two Somali women out grocery shopping they actually rent an apartment in uh, one of his family's houses so the the local culture and the, and the welcome that that he showed was representative of of many tremendous people that generally in these countries people are not uh, incredibly outgoing in terms of approaching tourists but they're incredibly friendly and and gracious if if you do respectfully approach and and strike up a conversation with them excellent anything else we should cover before we get to my last four questions going to these the the weather's the same year round so you're not worried right, about right. the weather <laughs> But you are worried about Australian and New Zealand school holidays, which <laughs> seem to be year-round and constant. I mentioned harder times are in November and December as well as July and, and uh, August, but especially New Zealand seems to have rolling holidays that, that wreak havoc with flight schedules. So if you're seeing incredibly high prices, you might just be looking at yet another one of the holiday breaks in those countries. And, and by shifting your plan by a few weeks, you might save quite a bit of money on the trip. And and lastly, because the flight service is so limited to this region, it, it does make sense to combine it with a trip to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, even flight service from Asia is quite limited, and there's no nonstops from Europe to any of these islands. Uh, there is good news for American originally originating tourists that uh, Fiji Airways now has a seasonal San Francisco flight in addition to the Mm. regular Los Angeles flight that allows a little bit greater access. And I think Fiji's on an up-and-coming, maybe a Hawaii of the future in terms of just incredible variety and great value as a as a future Pacific destination that that can have mainstream appeal beyond the uh, Australians and New Zealanders that take advantage of it currently. Excellent. You're standing in the prettiest spot that you saw in these islands. Where are you standing and what are you looking at? For me, it was the World War II sites on the beaches hmm. of uh, Tarawa, seeing the children playing on former gun turrets and just having a great time looking at the sunset. Excellent. One thing that makes you laugh and say only in Micronesia. I mentioned that guy, that uh, poor New Zealand guy that was paving the road in unbelievable heat. And and these kind of of moments where essentially cars run until they disintegrate on the side of the road and, and people find ways to scramble together and, and do things that with very limited resources that are, are just incredible for their ingenuity and, and their fun. See, I thought you were going to mention the guy with the hard hat and the coconuts. That's the one that made me laugh. Oh yeah, he's he, he was a delight, and uh, it was very practical as as, as well to, to see that. Now, in terms of the heat, you mentioned a couple times. So I'm picturing this is the tropics, but without the trade winds that we get, for instance, when we go to Hawaii. 
Yes, and uh, without the ability to just dive in the water for a cool oh, dip. Oh, <laughs> good point too. Um, okay. So it, you really want to adjust your schedules to very early in the morning and to the evenings, and and that's really when people are out and about, and and you'll meet them. The middle of the days, really, you should have limited activity to uh, just handle it. It is uh, absolutely punishing to to be out uh, in some of these climates. So the locals know what they're doing and and follow their lead. Okay. Finish this thought. You really know you're in Micronesia when what? When you're on an atoll and you can see both sides of the ocean and there's only a strip of land <laughs> separating you. And that's the entire distance of the country in that point. And, and seeing that somebody's house is right there and, and what it is to think of, of life that that's so different from my own experience. Well, and I think you were talking, we didn't talk about it, you were talking about going up country at one point, I think that was on... Uh, Naru. Naru, okay. And I think up country was total elevation of 273 feet is what I saw when I looked up, and that's got to depend on the tide, too. So... <laughs> And that's what makes it special to travel somewhere in the Pacific is is seeing how, I mean, whether it's global warming or the distance or the traditional cultures, how all of this fits together and, and makes for experiences and people that, that will teach you so much just by having such a vastly different daily experience than, than likely your own. Excellent. If you had to summarize Micronesia in three words... What three words would you use? Atoll, sure. runway, <laughs> okay. and heat. <laughs> and heat. Excellent. Our guest again has been Stefan. Stefan, where can people read more about your travels? I blog on a website called Rapid Travel Chai. I write about uh, trips for those of us that are pressed for time that that have our full-time jobs so i focus a lot on what you can do in short weekend trips or, or short trips rather than a lot of the perpetual travel blogs that are out there i also teach uh, at events mainly around the u.s such as frequent traveler university as well as schools to to share my love of travel and, and teaching practical travel skills and i have to ask so you accumulated quite a number of countries about three times how many i have been to i think and yet you're not a full-time nomadic traveler. Were you at some time to get to that number? No, I've I've never been, and I I do things very quickly. the The longest trip I've taken is four weeks, and hmm. some countries I visit quite lengthy. Others are shorter, such as some of the ones we discussed. Uh, I've always gotten work in international business, where I'll have some flexibility to add trips or vacations sure. but it's been essentially uh, starting out after college I lived in China for eight years traveled every province of China over those years then started expanding around Asia and then slowly added uh, piece by piece uh, added these and in the last uh, year or so I've been focused a bit more on the Pacific as, as well as Western and Central Africa so I'm saving a, a few choice ones for the very end. I've still not been to Italy. I don't count transit. So huh. <laughs> Italy is still still waiting out there and, and trying to figure out uh, what will be the last one. Um, a, a lot of what I do is what sometimes is called travel hacking. So sure. learning the ins and outs of the frequent flyer programs to make a trip like these Pacific trips possible where the cash cost would be way beyond my means otherwise. And mm -hmm. I don't have the time flexibility to seek other transportation options. So something like Fiji Airways, they partner with American Airlines, Alaska Airlines. So I was able to book a number of these tickets that otherwise would have cost several thousand dollars using my frequent flyer miles uh, to be able to make this possible on a shorter time frame. Excellent. And do you have any particular articles about the destinations we've been talking about on Rapid Travel Chai that we can refer people to? What's the best one that they should look at? My blog, and I must confess, is about three years behind in trips. So between <laughs> between work and travel, the hardest part of blogging is writing a trip reports. So I post a lot of tips. I, I post 
articles, frequent flyer deals that come out, uh, the trip backlog grows and grows. Uh, I do, uh, under the same name, have Instagram and Facebook pages where uh, I reliably post what I'm doing and, and little tips along the way. My username is the same as the blog, Rapid Travel Chai, where you can dig around. And, and I've got a number of readers that, that keep egging me on to, to post some of these. But uh, someday I will catch up. Uh, the issue is it's hard to be a traveler and a <laughs> I good travel blogger. completely understand. And a husband and an employee. <laughs> Your best recent travel tip? One trip that I'm reminded of where I've just been the past few days uh, driving around mainland Greece is that uh, many people think of traveling by Europe entirely by group tours or by trains. And, sure. mm-hmm. and I found often the most economical way is to rent a car. My rental car in Greece is costing me, I think, 12 euros a day for unlimited mileage, and I paid extra to have an automatic. Uh, fuel adds a little bit extra, but the the amount of freedom to explore is, is so much greater. Last night I was driving back from the monasteries of uh, Meteora mm-hmm. down to Thebes, and there was a local uh, small-town carnival that I was able to pull off the road and enjoy lamb off the spit and, and uh, hobnob with the locals that I never would have had that flexibility on the train or the group tour, and I probably have been saving money in it. So don't uh, forget about cars when you travel Europe. Excellent. Yeah, no, we've done actually more car travel than train travel in Europe for our family, especially because once you get two or three people, then the difference in cost can be significant too. Yeah, and once you, once you look at a train ticket price in Switzerland, you, you figure out <laughs> yeah, right. you figure out how to drive a manual and how to rent a car in Europe. It's, it's That one ticket is, is the same as a rental car for a week, it seems. Excellent. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for coming on Amateur Traveler and sharing with us your love for travel and for Micronesia. Thank you. It's been a big a big fan of your show and I appreciate it. Happy travels, everyone. In news of the community, I heard a little while back feedback on the Finger Lakes episode. Unfortunately, I've lost who sent this, and I apologize. Said, I just listened to the Finger Lakes episode, and it was fun to hear an episode about the area where I grew up. I just wanted to add some comments about some other areas of the Finger Lakes that weren't covered in the podcast. I grew up just north of Ithaca, so my focus was a bit north of the Elmira Corning area. Ithaca is a fun town to spend a day or two or three. Check out the fabulous Farmer's Market, Wander Ithaca Commons, explore Cornell University Johnson Museum of Art, Cornell Plantations, and the Laboratory of Ornithology. Also, there's the Paleontological Research Institution slash Museum of the Earth. Hike and swim at Buttermilk, Tremont, and <laughs> don't know how to say this, Tohannock State Parks. For more serious hiking, head over to the Finger Lakes National Forest. For dinner, there's Moosewood, Just a Taste, Maxie's Supper Club, Maya's, and North Star. Or for something more casual, try Ithaca Bakery, Wigman's, or Viva Taqueria. Also, Hazelnut Kitchen in Trumansburg is lovely. There's also a great iceberg in central New York. Purity in Ithaca. The Dairy Bar on the Cornell campus, Cayuga Lake Creamery in Interlochen, and Cream at the Top in King Ferry. For other fun food adventures, check out the Finger Lakes Beer Trail, the Finger Lakes Cheese Trail, and the Finger Lake Cider House. A couple other interesting towns worth checking out. Seneca Falls has the Women's Rights National Historic Park. And for an old-school dinner experience, head over to Connie's Diner in Waterloo. And Auburn has the William Seward House and the Harriet Tubman House and some excellent beer and food at the Prison City Brewery. And I'll put all of that in the show notes. And please remind me who wrote that, and I'll give you credit in the show notes as well. And the one I want to pick out there is Moosewood, because uh, Jim also pointed out that we had forgotten about Moosewood. And Moosewood is a vegetarian restaurant that has been there forever. When I went to college in upstate New York in the 80s, we cooked sometimes from the, in fact, we still cook sometimes from the Moosewood cookbook. And so I'll underline that one as well. With that, we're going to end this episode of The Amateur Traveler. Remember that we still have openings on the trips to both India and Japan. Check out The Amateur Traveler website under Booking Travel. If you have a question, send me an email at host at amateurtraveler.com or better yet, leave a comment on this episode at amateurtraveler.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Pinterest, or Instagram as Chris2x. And as always, thanks so much for listening.